Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today we'll be continuing our New Testament series with a look at the Acts of the Apostles. And so the second book written by Luke, who we focused on last week, as we covered the Gospel of Luke, went on to write Acts. And so Acts covers the stories of the young church, the first century Christian church. It follows the missionary journeys and ministries of both Peter and Paul and others. It is an action-filled book. It's a very narratively structured book that I think you'll really enjoy, and it's one that uh, is beloved by many Christians, of course. Uh, David is going to do an awesome job, I'm sure, breaking this book down. It's a lot to cover in one Sunday, just as the Gospel of Luke was a lot to cover in one Sunday. We actually decided to make this series a four-part instead of a three-part, so next week we will have the letters, and then the following week we'll have the book of Revelation. So, without further ado, David Flatt with Acts of the Apostles. All right, good morning. Thank you guys for coming this morning. Um, like Trey said, we've been really going through the New Testament, but it's really the whole Bible. So we started last spring, and we've been trying to walk through uh, the whole Bible. So we did all of the Old Testament. We finished that up a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to do the, the New Testament, but we'll do it in four weeks. So the New Testament, you can kind of use several different paradigms to understand it, but I think probably the most helpful paradigm, at least I think the paradigm that most of the authors thought through, was kind of this almost like a political document, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean uh, by that in a little bit, not politics the way we traditionally think of it, but this idea of the kingdom. So there's this, this new reign, this new power structure, this new way of viewing what's right, what's important, who's in charge has come into culmination. So all the prophets, all the Old Testament was pointing towards Israel being a light to the world, and now Israel has fulfilled its purpose in Jesus. So Israel, Jesus is the perfect Israelite who now his kingdom is ruling and reigning over the world. So we've, we've broken up the New Testament into four parts. Last week we did the king and his kingdom, and so that's the life of Jesus. His birth, life, death, and resurrection. We did all of Luke in one week. Kyle did a great job last week. This week we'll talk about the people and the kingdom, so the, the people of the kingdom. So that's really the book of Acts. So the book of Acts chronicles the first two or three decades of the church. So how did it start? And how did, how did it kind of become such a movement? So you think about it, there's about 7 billion people in the world, and a, a little over a third of them follow this Near Eastern itinerant preacher from this small town of Nazareth. So how did that, how did that happen, right? It's like a weird phenomenon from like a, um, a secular perspective. And we have really good, I think, spiritual answers for why, why that happened. But how, you know, what happened and what got that started? That's really the question Luke's trying to answer. So there's this, this guy named Theophilus. We don't exactly know who he is, but Luke addresses both the gospel according to Luke, which Kyle talked about last week, and Acts. So it's a two-part series. He addresses both of these letters to this guy named Theophilus. Um, I read a couple commentaries that think Theophilus is probably a um, upper class guy that was interested in the story of Jesus and commissioned Luke to write these two letters. So if, if that's what happened or not, it kind of answers some questions. But that's what Luke is. is the second part. I mean, that's what Acts is. It's the second part of Luke's story. Next week, Peter has this awful task. Um, I asked him to do it over text because. Uh, it's just not the sort of thing you ask somebody in person because it's like almost offensive. But uh, he, P- Peter's going to teach Romans through Jude <laughs> in one class. So if you don't know anything about the Bible, come next week because Peter's going to teach like 
all the most important like theology in the whole Bible in 45 minutes. Uh, he's going to do that next week. So y'all come next week. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's going to be a great class. Peter did something similar in the Old Testament. He ran through like this like 12 prophets in one class. So I was like, you did a good job. We ought to ask him to do that again. He probably wished he did a bad job with it. So wouldn't ask him again. And then we'll finish up with The Return of the King, which of course is the name of one of the greatest books uh, in fiction ever written, but it's also uh, this idea behind Jesus' return and what that means uh, for his kingdom. So all that being said, that's kind of where we're going. So let's jump in today and talk about the book of Acts. So um, one of the things I'm going to do that Kyle did this last week, and we've kind of done similar things before, uh, but it kind of peppered his PowerPoint on the book of Luke with great um, art, mostly from the Renaissance era, and I thought I would just keep doing that. And as I was kind of putting in these pictures and stuff in the PowerPoint, I thought that there may be like a kind of a deeper meaning behind some of this art. So I want to share a few things with you, and may, this may not mean anything, but I think um, one of the things I've been thinking about is like the language of God and how He communicates to us. And one of the ways, of course, is like through truth and uh, through the revelation of Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But another way is through beauty. I think when we see beauty in nature or um, a, a breathtaking sunset or even great art, we kind of connect to something beyond the physical world. So I hope as we look at some of the, the great paintings of the past, I can't really put it into words, but I hope in some way it's like a spiritual experience. You see, these are people connected to our story as the people of God who lived centuries ago who were inspired by the stories of the people of God to create great things with their talents. And so you say, I, I say, that doesn't mean a lot to me because I can't really draw like stick figures. So I just really am poor in that area. But I actually think it's applicable to us. So you say, God's given you talents in different areas. And so how can you be inspired by the stories of his people living courageously to create something in your world? So uh, there's this idea that we're either going to be creators or consumers. Okay, that's kind of the paradigm that you live in. And almost all of us in 2018, we're consumers. We consume social media. We consume our favorite articles on the Internet. We consume videos on YouTube. We consume movies. We consume and take in all this stuff. But God is a creator, not a consumer. And we're creating His image to be creators. And so I think as we think about the great art of the past that has been inspired by the story of God, Think about what you can create in your job to be a better teacher, to be um, a better lawyer, to be a better whatever it is that God's called you to do. How can you create in that space uh, inspired by the story? So all that being said, let's jump in to the book of Acts. This is a painting by a gentleman named Anthony Vendick, and it's called The Descent of the Holy Spirit. It was drawn in 1619. That's a long time ago. Okay, so this is this gentleman named Luke, and he wrote, we talked about, he wrote the first part of this story, the Gospel of Luke, so we can remember that name. But the second part is the Acts of the Apostles, um, kind of traditionally called. We'll talk about why that may or may not be the best name for this book, so we'll just call it the Acts. Um, but he wrote this two-part series and sent it to a gentleman named Theophilus to explain the story of Jesus. So Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, and he was a traveling companion of Paul. We know from Colossians 4 that, that Luke was traveling around on these missionary journeys with Paul. So a lot of his writings kind of reflect the story of Paul and how the early church started kind of from Paul's perspective. 
There's a couple of key verses um, I want to talk about that I think really set up the story of Acts well. So I want to kind of understand the big picture of the story of Acts. We can't get into the theological details in 40 minutes. But I hope when we leave, you see, oh, that's what the book of Acts is about. And then we'll see if we can take away some points. So Acts 1-1. So you think this is the very first uh, verse in the book of Acts. And let's just turn to it real quick because I, um, I think it's important to see Acts as the second chapter of... Um, of Luke's story. So Luke wrote Luke, and then he writes his second book, Acts. So he starts it off, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's verse 1-1. So that kind of leads into, well, what's this book about? It's going to be what Jesus, through the power of his Spirit, continued to do and teach. So this is a continuation of what Luke started in the Gospel of Luke. Then here, verse 1-8, this is the big theme verse that sets up the rest of um, the rest of Acts. And if you understand this, you kind of understand the outline of the book. So verse 1-8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jer- Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the outline for the book. So in, Judea, in Jerusalem, this is Acts 1 through 9. This is what happens in Jerusalem. The, the, the church begins in Jerusalem. It's theologically significant. It's also historically significant. That's, what, that's where it starts. Then starting in chapter 10 and running all the way through 19, I'm sorry, all the way through 13, this is the story of Judea and Samaria. So this would be Jerusalem's a city. Judea and Samaria is, is a region kind of locally and close to um, Jerusalem, and then the idea of to the ends of the earth, this is the greater known world, really all the way to Rome is where the book ends. So the book, the book starts the small upper room, kind of depressed, lonely, anxious, worried group of people that were following this kind of, like I said, itinerant, wandering preacher who was killed on a cross, and they don't exactly understand the meaning of it, and then That's where it starts, and it ends literally in front of Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And then, of course, the story after Acts is it launches into the largest religious movement in the history of the world. So um, that's kind of what happens here. Three uh, three large sections in um, in Acts. So this is the Bible Project. We're following a lot of their outlines. So this is a picture that somebody drew. uh, These guys that kind of outlines the Book of Acts. But you see here, it kind of fits. You got one through seven is a story in Jerusalem. Then 8 through 12 is a story in Judea and Samaria. And then 13 through 20 is to the ends of the earth. First with Paul's missionary journeys and then to Rome. So here's our four sections that we're going to talk about. 1 through 7, Jerusalem. 8 through 12, in Judea and Samaria. 13 through 20, to the ends of the earth. The missionary journeys. And then we'll break up 13 through, or 21 through 28 to the ends of the earth. This is Paul heading to Rome. So if you keep that outline in your mind, maybe that's kind of... Um, not exciting or inspiring, but if you keep that outline in your mind, just the structure of the book, I think the theological points Paul's trying to make uh, will make more sense. So kind of three main sections, and we're going to divide the third section into two parts. So all that being said, why don't we start with the first section? So this is a painting by a gentleman named Sebastiano Rissi in 1659 he drew this painting and this is the liberation of saint peter so this happens in acts chapter 3 this is peter healing the lame man in the temple so you may remember that story they get arrested they have to go in front of the uh the sanhedrin and talk about it so the bible project you guys know they make these great videos that can explain things more succinctly and better than we can so let's watch the video about acts one through seven 
earliest accounts about Jesus. Great. So let's talk about that section real briefly, and then a grassroots countercultural movement was born in the eastern end of the empire. Yeah, it started among the Jewish people, who for centuries now have been scattered around the known world. But no matter where they lived or what language they spoke, they kept their identity as the family of Abraham, devoted to the one true God. And every year, they would travel to Jerusalem for sacred festivals. And during one of these, the Feast of Pentecost, the visitors encountered a group of Jews who could somehow speak in everyone's <coughs> native dialect. Yeah, they were telling stories about a man named Jesus who had been executed by the Romans. They claimed he had risen from the dead and was now exalted as the true king of Israel and the whole world. And this Jesus was now calling people to adopt his upside-down set of values and live under his rule called the kingdom of God. And thousands of Jews decided to stay in Jerusalem and join the movement. It grew in size and its influence and gained favor with people. But not with the Jerusalem temple leaders. They viewed this whole thing as a dangerous religious sect, and they even executed one of its leaders named Stephen. It's no longer safe in Jerusalem, and so most of the followers flee to the outlying land called Judea. And you might think that's the end of the story, but actually this tragedy became the way the movement spread outside Jerusalem. That's where the second part of the book of Acts begins. The scattered followers end up in surprising <laughs> places, like Samaria, where their ancient enemies live. Yeah, and Luke shows us how all of these unexpected people start following Jesus, like a sorcerer from Samaria who has to learn that the way of Jesus isn't about gaining power, but giving it up to serve others. There's also a story about an Ethiopian delegate who, after discussing the scroll of the prophet Isaiah with Philip, decides to join the movement. Yeah, Jesus is expanding his movement out into Judea and Samaria, just like he said he would. Which is great. But back in Jerusalem, Saul of Tarsus. He's part of the religious elite who oppose the new movement, and he's finding and arresting Jesus' followers anywhere he can. This is a cruel guy. But think about it from his perspective. In the past, Israel had turned away to other gods and to false prophets, leading to disaster. He believed he was protecting Israel and God's honor by getting rid of these people. And then Saul hears that the movement spread north to Damascus, so he sets out there to find and arrest more followers. And on the way, Saul has this sudden encounter with the risen Jesus himself. Jesus asks Saul why he's fighting against him. And then Jesus commissioned Saul to now represent him to Israel and to the nation. <coughs> Saul is stunned and speechless. And so he ends up in Damascus. But now he's announcing the good news about the Jesus he had just been attacking. And no one saw this coming. Totally. And the same goes for what happened next. Over in the port city of Caesarea, there was a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And he represents everything the Jewish people would hate about the Roman occupation. An angel appears to him, and he tells him to call for a man named Peter. So Peter comes, and he finds Cornelius and his friends and his family all gathered together in his home. Yeah, and this is scandalous. Jewish people don't enter a non-Jewish home to avoid ritual impurity. So what's Peter going to do? Well, right before this, Peter had a vision. God brought to him a collection of animals that his people were forbidden to eat. And then God said to Peter, eat these. And this is shocking to Peter. He says, I've never eaten anything impure. And God responds, don't call impure what I have made pure. And then that's it. The vision was over. So Peter's going to start a new diet? No, he's an Israelite. And he's honored these customary food laws his entire life. The vision was preparing him for this moment of him standing among impure non-Israelites. 
And he realizes that God is declaring these people are a part of the family of Abraham. And so Peter decides to stay and tell them about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit shows up just as he did at Pentecost. But now it's for a Roman centurion and his non-Jewish family. The movement is broken up. And so back in Jerusalem, Peter is now telling the other apostles about what happened, and they start getting reports about even more non-Jewish people following Jesus up in the big trade city north called Antioch. So they send a man there named Barnabas to check things out. Barnabas finds the Jesus movement alive and well in Antioch, and he finds it's made up of people from all over the world. And so Barnabas recruits Saul to come work with him in Antioch for a year. They're teaching, living among the people there, watching the movement grow. The church in Antioch was the first international Jesus community, and it is where Jesus' followers were first called Christians, the Christ community. And so the way of Jesus was transformed from a group of Messianic Jews in Jerusalem into the multi-ethnic Jesus movement spreading through the world. Their faith was the same. Um, I want to talk about kind of two key themes in 8 through 12, and we'll see if we can't make some sense uh, of what's going on here. So this is the liberation of Peter that we talked about, 1722. This is when Peter is freed from, from prison. Okay, so um, I want to make two kind of key points that I think are in Acts 8 through 12. The first is that Luke is trying to show here how this small Messianic Jewish sect becomes a multicultural, multi-ethnic, international movement. So I think some people would want you to believe, and maybe even you do believe, that Christianity is kind of a religion of the West where people all kind of have the same political views and kind of look similar and come from the same socioeconomic class. Maybe you wouldn't articulate that way, but maybe a vision of what it means to be a Christian, something like that is in the back of your mind, or maybe not, maybe not if in your mind, in the minds of people that you know and are friends with or work with. Um, part of what Luke is showing here is that from the very beginning, Christianity was meant for not just the Jewish people, not just for suburban, upper-middle-class Western Americans, but for the whole world. So the point of Christianity, the point of what Jesus did, the point of the Holy Spirit coming to Judea and Samaria is the people of Abraham is now open for anyone in the world, no matter your color, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your class, no matter your political views, anyone who will trust in King Jesus as the risen Lord of the universe is now a part of God's people, the people of Abraham. So this is an interesting idea that you may not know, but Christianity is the most ethnically politically and socioeconomically diverse religion in the history of the world and it's not even close so you think about other religions in either current day or even in history and almost all of them have deep ethnic ties ties to a particular language a particular way of living a particular tribe even the large ones are really kind of localized to an area of the world Christianity is not like that. There's Christians on every continent, speaking almost every language in the world, looking all kinds of different ways, and that's on purpose, and that was designed not um, by current-day missionaries, but from the very beginning by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here is Luke is intentionally showing that the way of Jesus is for everyone. So you think about some of the stories that Luke tells, and he's, I mean, he's like, really trying to make this point, not by explicitly saying it, but by showing through the narratives of the story he tells. So you think about Philip goes to see this Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot, right? So this is Ethiopian political official, so an upper class 
guy from Ethiopia obviously would look different than Philip, um, probably have a bunch of different preconceptions about what the world is than Philip, but he becomes a Christian. You also have um, Saul. So this Saul is literally a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is what he calls himself. He's studied under Gamaliel. It's like he was studied, he studied at the Harvard Jewish Institution. I mean, this guy is like a, a zealot. He's passionate for the, the Jewish way of life. He is part of the people of God. So you have Ethiopian um, political diplomat. You have a strict Jewish Pharisee. You've got, then Peter gets this vision, which is weird, like super weird. He gets this vision, this tent with these animals in it, and God's like, eat the, eat the pig and the gorilla. I've made them clean. The whole thing's weird to us, but in the context of Peter's worldview, it makes a lot of sense. So for Peter, the people of God eat a certain way, practice specific religious rituals, especially circumcision, which we'll talk about later, and that's what it meant to be uh, God's people. God tells Peter in this vision, no, I've made everything clean, including everybody. And the next thing uh, Peter does is goes to a Gentile Roman's house. So these would not, by definition, kind of be the kind of person that would fit in well with a, a, a Jewish messianic um, Christian. He goes in his house, a Roman official who's a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. He decides he wants to follow Jesus, and he's baptized. So now you have Ethiopian eunuch, strict Jewish Pharisee, Roman Gentile, and uh, then you also have this Roman soldier happens later when they're in prison. Paul and Barnabas are in prison, right? And there, there's an earthquake, and people run out. Paul and Barnabas stay there, and um, then the the uh, prison guards like, "Why didn't you run away?" And they're like, "Well, you know, we want to stay and talk to you." And so they tell him the story. Of Jesus, he's like, "That's amazing. I was going to be like." I was probably going to be executed because I let you guys escape from jail, but you stayed here, so I want to follow Jesus too. So then him and his whole family is baptized. So you see you got Roman officials, Ethiopian, Jews, Gentiles, all these people are coming together in one family, the family of God. And that's really the story of 8 through 12. We're going to Judea and Samaria. So let's talk about 13 through 20. There's a great video on 13 through 20. You should go watch it at the Bible Project. I'm not going to show it because we're kind of running out of time. This is a picture of the conversion at the pro-council. So this is a, a story um, in this section of the Bible where this, uh, this lame man is, uh, is healed and then is converted to Christianity. So let's talk about the themes from this section of the Bible. 13 through 20. So this is a really an amazing portion of Scripture. So we've started in Jerusalem, we've gone to Judea and Samaria, and now the Holy Spirit's really getting wound up. We're going to take the gospel to the whole world to the whole world. So um, the key themes here are this guy named Paul is recruited to Antioch, which is the largest church in the world at this time, which is kind of funny. You'd think it'd be in Jerusalem, but it's not. The largest church is in Antioch. It's this coastal city, really multi-ethnic place, which I think in a lot of ways explains why Christianity could become so multi-ethnic because Antioch becomes large and then they send missionaries out all over the world. And one of these missionaries is this guy named Paul. So Paul sent on three missionary journeys from... Um, from Antioch, if you went to like a, a Christian high school, a Christian college, you've seen maps like this and you hate it, hate them because these people that taught your Bible classes made you memorize all these cities with funny names and you didn't really see the point of any of them. Or maybe that's not your story, that's just my story. But you've seen um, maps like these and understand Paul goes from Antioch on these three journeys. So the first journey, he um, goes through what's called Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. Then the second journey, he goes 
through Asia Minor again, but ends up in Greece. And third missionary journey, he goes through Asia Minor a third time, ends up in Jerusalem, which in some ways you might think is a mistake, uh, but I think similar to what happened to Stephen, God had big plans for why um, Paul ends up in Jerusalem. So that's kind of the first theme is that the church becomes a, a mission field. That's kind of the theme and the idea and the heartbeat of a gospel Bible-centered church, and it should be today. If we want to be a gospel Bible-centered church, we need to thinking, be thinking about where is the gospel not really penetrated? Where is the gospel not on fire? How can we send people there to tell them the story? And so the very first church is doing that. We need to be doing that today. Then the, uh, the second thing would be a mission to Israel. So for Paul, he always had a special heartbeat for his people to see the, um, the people of Israel, his ethnic brothers, turn to and follow the risen King Jesus. And so every time Paul goes to the city, the first thing he does, he goes to the temple and he preaches the gospel. And it almost always ends bad. He gets run out of the temple, they try to stone him, stirs up dissension. But, but that doesn't um, keep Paul from this this heartbeat that he has of wanting to see his ethnic brothers and sisters turn and follow King Jesus. This leads to this kind of conflict among Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, which is really the theme or one of the sub-themes of the New Testament, is how do non-Jewish people now come into the people of God, which has this Old Testament legacy. We follow these, they follow these rituals, they follow these customs. If you don't follow those, can you become the people of God? So this, is, this big, important passage happens in Acts 15. This is a lot of what the book of Galatians is about. It's kind of referring here. But basically, all the elders kind of get together and have this big meeting, and the question is, I don't know any way to say this without kind of being explicit. The question is, do Gentiles who become Christians have to be circumcised? That's really the question. You can understand there's a lot of motivation for Gentiles that believe Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead. They would like to not be circumcised if they don't have to be, right? So you can, you can imagine where that tension is coming from. And so the decision is made through a lot of prayer and studying of Scripture that no, New converts to Christianity don't have to be circumcised, and they don't have to follow ritualistic Jewish customs. But um, the apostles say, don't go into uh, pagan temples and worship pagan gods, and uh, abstain from sexual immorality. So those are the two things from Jewish law that the elders apply to the Christian converts. Abstain from sexual immorality and don't worship foreign gods in the temple. Okay, so this is a huge moment in Christianity because it really... I mean, of course, it, it's theologically true and biblically true and the whole thing, but it just logistically, it makes uh, the Great Commission much more feasible. We can go into the world and preach the good news, and we don't have to tell everyone to get circumcised if they believe in King Jesus, right? So that's, that's kind of what's going on here in Acts 15. So this is a clash with Israel. Then you get this clash of cultures between Christians and the Greco-Roman world. And this is, this is where it kind of the political thing you kind of see coming out even more because these people are walking around saying that, that there's a new king who, who requires our full submission even above Caesar, even above the state. And so the initial reaction is how Rome would always deal with these kind of problems. And in fact, they, they kind of recognize it. Oh, you know, little small sect over here says they're in charge. Let's go kill them and wipe them out, right? They kind of understand that. But there's something different about the Christian movement because they don't pose a military threat. In fact, they say, pay taxes to Caesar. So they're paying taxes, they're being good neighbors, they're not arming up, they're loving uh, everyone, they're being kind to everyone, but they're saying that their authority is not Caesar. 
um, so it creates this kind of weird clash between the Roman world and the Christian world. The other thing is the Christian world kind of turns the economy of Rome upside down. So a lot of the Roman economy was centered around pagan worship of, of idols and, and temples. There's this funny story in Acts 19. Um, the guy that runs the Temple of Artemis um, is really concerned because people aren't coming to the Temple of Artemis to worship his the God that they made. He said, this guy Paul is saying that gods can't be made out of human hands. And if we don't stop him saying that we can't make gods, we're going to lose our business. We're making a lot of money by people coming and paying money to worship this idol that we made. So you see, there's a lot of tension there. It's part of the reason that um, the Romans are so frustrated, Greco-Roman world is so frustrated and concerned about this rising Jesus movement. Which leads us to the, the last part of uh, the book of Acts. And so we can finish here pretty quickly. Um, so Paul ends his third missionary journey in Jerusalem. Starts preaching in Jerusalem again and really inflames the Jewish leaders who bring Paul up to trial in front of the Sanhedrin. Okay, That trial doesn't go that well. But also, Roman officials start to worry that Paul is rising, a um, trying to bring up like a, a revolt, a movement against Rome. And so they send him on trial. And so Paul keeps going to different people to be on trial over and over again in this section of the Bible. And he keeps giving these amazing speeches every time he's on trial. And so people are like, that's interesting. And the Roman officials are like, that's really interesting, but I don't understand what this has anything to do with me. This guy's like, he's preaching about this guy rose from the dead, and this is not a Roman problem. So I guess... Go to Festus. I don't, you know, I don't really know what to do with this. And so that happens three times. Felix sends him to Festus. Festus sends him to Agrippa. Agrippa sends Paul eventually to Caesar. So Paul, Paul like, they literally don't know what to do because on one hand, this is, um, this is treasonous language. He's talking about a new king other than Caesar. But on the other hand, he's talking about loving his enemies, paying taxes, doesn't, you know, is peaceful, is actually against violence. So do we need to execute him or do we need to like let this crazy man go on his life so he ends up in um he goes to rome he gets in the shipwreck it's an amazing story like a you know 12 year old boy loved to read paul's on this boat he gets shipwrecked he's bitten by a snake really cool it's like something from like the lord of the rings or something really cool story he ends up in rome before caesar and caesar really doesn't know what to do with him either so what does caesar do caesar puts him under house arrest which you think is like, oh my goodness, he's going to sit up there and he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. He's going to die in jail. But what happens? He's in house arrest and he starts what? Writing letters. So he starts writing letters, which Peter's going to talk about next week. He writes letters all over the known world to all these churches. And these letters inspire another wave of, of explosive church growth and church planning and people being engrossed by the story of Jesus. So this is another theme. You know, maybe the evil one desired it for, for evil, but God had a huge, bigger plan of what's to accomplish. So you can imagine um, Paul sitting, um, sitting in this house arrest, pen in hand, or he's probably dictating. He had an amanuensis writing. And writing these, he writes Romans and Galatians and Philippians and First and Second Timothy and all these great uh, letters that today inspire us to, to follow the way of Jesus. So here's how uh, the book ends, which is really amazing. This, this is Acts 28, 31. Acts 28, 31. So Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's under house arrest. He's still accomplishing um, the way of God. So what are the main ideas in Luke-Acts? Luke-Acts is two-part series. What are the main ideas? Real quickly, number one, God's kingdom came on earth as in heaven through Jesus, 
his spirit, and his church. So these things working together, that's a story that Luke's trying to tell Theophilus. Jesus came, lived his remarkable life, died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, was risen from the dead to conquer sin and death, and then his spirit came upon his people, which turned the world upside down with a new kingdom, a new way of viewing and living in the world. So then how do we show faithfulness to this new king? I think that's an interesting question, right? Because we're not going to show faithfulness to this king the same way we would show faithfulness to Caesar or uh, the king of England or the, the constitution or whatever. So what, is, what are we going to do to show faithfulness to this king? First, we're going to share the good news in word and actions. We've talked about this a lot. Do we want to be a church that's about social justice and serving the poor? Or do we want to be a gospel-centered church that's about telling the good news and telling the story of Jesus that can forgive people of sins and save them for eternity? We want to do both. And so following the way of King Jesus is we want to incorporate words and telling the story. We want to incorporate actions and sharing the love. Next thing we want to do is we want to form diverse communities of kingdom living. Right? So the people of God is not from one socioeconomic class. It's not one color. It's not one level of education. It should be everyone in the world living a radically new ethic where everyone is created in the image of God and has the divine command to live out the call of the kingdom. And So we need to be forming communities that look like that, that love like that, and have a mission like that. The third thing we want to do is we want to be trusting the Spirit's power and guidance. I think especially in America, I really think this way. If I want to accomplish something, I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I want to get a five-point plan and I'll work as hard as I can to accomplish that. That's not the way we should think in the church, though. We want to trust in not our plan, but the Spirit's plan to change the world. So you think the first Christians, they would have had a really different plan to change the world than to have one of their first leaders stoned and then to put in a place of prominence the guy who led the stoning, right? That seemed like a stupid, like a bad plan. But that was God's plan, and it turned the whole world upside down. And now there's Christians all over the world that look all different ways, that all worship the same king. And so we want to trust not our own wisdom and our own plans, but the Spirit's plan to lead our class and to lead Highland into whatever God has planned for us. So I think we're out of time. Let me pray for us. I appreciate you guys being here. We'll go. Peter's going to pick up the letters of the kingdom next week. It's going to be like the greatest lesson we've ever had because it's like the whole New Testament. And you guys thank Peter uh, later for teaching it. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Father, we just thank you so much that we are uh, the people of your kingdom. And God, we want to stand in the shoes of the brave and bold Christians in Acts who live for something greater than themselves. Thank you for the people in this room, how much I love them, how much they've poured into me in different ways. And we just pray that we can live uniquely uh, for the sake of your name. Thank you so much for your word and its inspiration to us. Uh Thank you to David for doing a wonderful job with Acts. There's a couple videos he edited out. And you probably, if you've been listening to this, you understand that. They're Bible Project videos. There's actually four on uh, Acts. What's interesting is they're making these right as we're doing this, and so I believe only the first three have been recorded and released, and the fourth will uh, be forthcoming, and so keep an eye on for that. I'd also recommend, uh, as it pertains to the Bible Project, they have an app called the Read Scripture app, and in that app it incorporates these videos along with, I think it's the ESV version of the Bible, and so you can read through the entire Bible in one year, I'm in the process of that, you know, six days into it, and you get like a video. So video on, let's say, uh, Genesis or the Torah, and then you read four or five chapters of Genesis, plus they incorporate the Psalms into that. Um, and so then, of course, if you move into Acts, these videos would be incorporated as you're reading through Acts. And so it's a really great way to uh, interact with and interface with the Bible that's a little bit different than just pulling out a Bible and reading it or even just listening to the Bible. 
Uh, it's a beautifully designed app. App Highly recommend it. Certainly as we're heading into 2019, maybe that's a good way for you to uh, read the Bible this year and spend more time uh, with God. Next week, we'll be back together with the Letters of the Kingdom. This is going to be Romans through Jude. Uh, this will be Peter Snell teaching on this. Uh, as today was difficult to summarize Acts, certainly next week will be difficult to summarize all these letters, all these epistles. Um, and yet, I know that Peter will do a great job with it. Uh, so probably more focused on the typical theme of the letters and maybe just a little bit of a sort of cliff notes shot at each letter in particular and maybe the similarities and differences between those. Uh, I've actually been listening through the New Testament. I have like four chapters of Revelation left to listen to for my 2018 reading plan. And uh, listening through all the letters is really, really interesting to see the differences between them and also the similarities and to see what the church was struggling with at those times and how still today we're struggling with a lot of the same things. And so uh, this book is not dead. It's not finished. It is still alive and it still is uh, useful for teaching, for inspiration and, and worship of God uh, as we read it in connection with God and in the relationship with God and His Spirit as we read it. So that's all we have for this week. Again, thank you to David. David does organize all this and he does a wonderful job teaching and uh, look forward to this year and many more lessons and many more podcasts to come. So thank you for tuning in to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Again, I'm Kyle Fagala. We'd love to see you in person if you're ever in the Memphis area and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.